Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Immigration, that's one of the hot issues. If you're talking immigration, you know, you'll have a full board all day. The poor old immigrants get blamed for, for lots of things. And they, and they look at and they say, oh, look, there's no houses or there's a shortage of jobs or there's pressure on infrastructure. Why are we bringing in immigrants? Yet then we'll get calls from people say, look, I'm running a farm. You know, I'm an Ashburton. If we didn't have the Filipinos coming in, we would be stuffed. Mark Sainsbury is a talkback host on Radio Live. There's nothing wrong saying, hang on, is our country changing and what is it, fact, what, what is it going to mean if ethnically we become more Asian? I had a brief spell in talkback radio 10 years ago. And Mark Sainsbury's right. Immigration is a talkback perennial, one of the few topics that will guarantee you a full board of calls after midnight. Taking calls on immigration made me uncomfortable at the time because it felt toxic. There are certain people you know who are just going to be speaking hate and they're going to ring up and, 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 and they have a particular take and they're going to, and you think they've got no part in this debate. If I'm honest, I'll admit I had no problem writing a large part of the audience off as being straight-up racist. You often hear this phrase, I walk down Queen Street, I don't recognise my own country. I'm still uneasy about the tone of this stuff. But ten years on, in the age of President Trump, accusing people of racism feels lazy and possibly dangerous. I worry that it makes those arguments seem more powerful to anyone who feels like they're being shut out of the conversation. And I worry as well that we're at risk now of just shouting past each other as our positions grow more and more entrenched. So if I could suggest, I mean, it would be a good idea if you came to this issue neutral and not by your questions horribly biased on one side of the argument, because frankly, you're wrong. In association with Massey University, this is Slice of Heaven, a podcast series about immigration in New Zealand when more people are coming than ever before. I'm Noelle McCarthy, and in this episode, we're looking at tensions. What creates them? Is it the economy? The biggest part of the story of New Zealand's migration intake is around relatively low-skilled migrants. Is it race? Look, let me just say, it is axiomatic that immigration is about ethnicity. Maybe it's the media. And then if you somehow try and argue with them, then you're part of the establishment problem that's trying to put down these ideas and keep them quiet, the whole sort of conspiracy idea. And that's what, and that's what Trump feeds off as well. We're living through what feels like a hinge moment in history. The UK electorate has taken the historic decision to withdraw from the European Union after more than 40 years of membership. Donald J. Trump will become the 45th president of the United States, defeating Hillary Clinton in a campaign unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. There were reports of at least one suicide bomber at two fast food cafes close to the Stade de France. Build that wall! Build that wall! This tension around national borders is a global phenomenon. But how is it playing out in New Zealand? 
Massey University professor Paul Spoonley says we've always been uncertain about the impact of the outside world rushing in. It's one of the enduring themes of New Zealand society is, you know, who's coming, where are they coming from, what are they going to do to us once they get here, and then how should we adjust our values and behaviours? How should we adjust our institutions to reflect them? Well, when I see terrorism events offshore, some people think it's not a matter of if, it's when in our case. Winston Peters has been an immigration sceptic since forming New Zealand First in the 1990s. Now, there have been examples here where people have been traced and have been engaged offshore. Now, the question is, when will that offshore engagement actually take place onshore? We haven't had a terrorist attack and we don't have problems with illegal immigrants or open borders with Europe. But we do have record numbers of migrants and it feels like there's something in the air. That's why Labour will make changes to immigration rules to slow down the number of new migrants by 20 to 30,000 people a year. The Green Party wants drastic changes to immigration levels in a way that echoes the long-held sentiments of New Zealand First. I'm pleased to announce today that further changes to further control the number and improve the quality of new migrants coming to New Zealand. First thing you do, you do what New Zealand First says. You cut back to bringing in people that we need, not people who need us. He's not the only one worrying about immigration this year, but no other New Zealand politician has made the subject his own in the way that Peters has. Now, some of his arguments are starting to look appealing to a wider audience. We will always need immigrants to fill, and skilled immigrants to fill key vacancies in our economy, in our science, in our education, for example. But that immigration should never be used as an excuse for failing to train, skill and employ our own young people first. It's worth pointing out, there isn't necessarily a direct correlation. Many of the 90,000 NEETs, young people not in employment, education or training, are in Northland, which is very little immigration. But respected commentators are thinking along the same lines. Immigrants only move because they're better off as a result. I mean, it's like our ancestors or, I mean, you're an immigrant yourself. You you came here because the opportunities here were better, presumably, for you. My ancestors did that. So I'm not critical of the individuals. Um, It's the policy. There's no doubt that if you come from India, where GDP per capita might be, you know, a fifth of what it is here, your prospects are probably better here. But the prospects for New Zealanders in this remote economy that's dependent on a fixed stock of natural resources aren't enhanced and, I argue, have been gradually undermined um, by that really rapid population growth. That's former Treasury economist Michael Riddell. And business journalist Bernard Hickey agrees. The underlying thought in New Zealand's sort of economic um, view of the world was that all migration was good all the time. But when you look at our um, productivity performance, the uh, uh, amount of output per hour worked, it has dragged significantly uh, from the rest of the world. And over the last four or five years, there's been been no productivity growth whatsoever. And that's happened at the same time as this big surge in migration of low-skilled people. Deepan Sharma arrived in Auckland from northern India on a student visa four years ago. He says agents selling tertiary education in Rajasthan tell prospective students that getting residency here is a piece of cake. New Zealand is easy. You just pay a fee after you get approval. If you are here, they just send you for your residency. 
they never say that you're going to study, you're going to work, permit, you're going to go to different country, no. Oh, it's easy to get in just six to nine months diploma or one year or two year degree course and straight away next year you will get the jobs. It's called job search visa. They do get money from these private institutions. I heard it, one of my friend, he's a legal advisor for New Zealand now. He said these institutes pay them back up to 25% of the fee. Deepan's immigration lawyer, Alistair McClymont, works out of a practice in Epsom. He thinks the system as it stands is exploitative. It's just a big cash cow, basically. The whole system is designed to generate as much income for the country as possible and with very little, if any, regard for the human cost. Alistair McClymont is talking about the human cost for his clients, who are overwhelmingly young Indian students. An increasing number of them are missing out on residency, having been led to believe it would be a straightforward process, an impression, he says, the government tacitly encouraged. But there's also another human cost, as Alan Johnson from the Salvation Army explains. I think some of the problems with the so-called competition between young Kiwis and and migrants, most often of the same age too, there's been a huge uh, um, migration of of 20 to 24-year-olds into New Zealand to fill those jobs, particularly in the hospitality sector, but also in the construction and dairying and things like that. There's a consistent pattern of many of these people being exploited by by employers, um, in particular being paid, you know, not being paid at all or alternatively being paid well below the, the legal minimum wage. And so if that that's the nature of the business model that many of these people are running. Someone who is a New Zealand citizen and who has a right to expect the minimum wage isn't going to be able to compete because that's not what the rules are anymore. I started selling the newspaper here first on the Queen Street. I used to sell newspapers, standing newspaper, and I used to sell newspaper in the Middlemore Hospital, knocking the door every morning, 6 o'clock, selling the newspaper. As well as delivering the paper, Deepan worked at McDonald's, as a kiwi fruit picker and in a range of other low-paid jobs. He says he was ripped off by at least one of his employers. They'll pay you on your pay slip on 15 hours. How they can judge, how they can save their end? Oh, we didn't do anything. The pain only worked 15 hours. Technically, I worked 21 hours to get that money. And still, I was not paid properly. Deepan has residency now and works in IT. Here I got my residency. I was crying in the office. Why? Because that took my day and night, everything. I had to work. <laughs> so it was very stressful. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's really stressful because back home you have family. Mm. They also in pressure, stress. Because you took a step to show that I can take care of my family. But family knows the pain is waking up 4 o'clock and working underpaid, rest of the people getting this much paid for the same job. So how they feel? Money is not a big issue in here, in anywhere in the world you can earn. But the mental stress that you've gone through and your family, that's the worst when being an immigrant. Unscrupulous employers shortchanging vulnerable migrants is one thing. But Bernard Hickey says even honest bosses relying on cheap labour can have a negative effect on the economy. What actually should happen in an economy that's continually improving is that those employers should think, OK, I need to produce more of some good or service and I can only use this number of people on this wage, or maybe I might have to pay them a higher wage, 
I need to find a way to produce more with the same number of people. And that's how you get productivity growth. Companies invest in new technologies and new practices, and they pay higher wages. And then, and then the, the world is a better place. But when you can get by with just dumping cheap labour into your existing system, then why would you change? We talk to a lot of economists from across the political spectrum. And perhaps unsurprisingly, there was no broad agreement about how best to handle immigration. What we do know is this. Headline economic growth has averaged an impressive 3% over the last five years. But strip out the effect of immigration and look at it from a per capita basis and the figures are less convincing, averaging more like 1% per person per year. And within a wider, consolidated upswing, there'll still always be winners and losers. Growth isn't shared evenly. A market looks different depending on where you're standing. Real estate is one where we hear a lot about the influence of immigration. But homeowners probably think real estate is booming, whereas renters think it's in crisis. In short, it's complicated. But the idea that there might be a straightforward answer is appealing. People look at it and think, hang on, this is simple. There is a solution to it, isn't it? It's a numbers thing. We're bringing in this number. We only need to bring in that number. It's simple. Just just cut it in half. And when you can see in front of your face that the motorways are more clogged, the schools and hospitals are full up, uh, house prices are the most expensive in the world, and our wages are at extraordinarily low and uh, uh, and wage inflation is at, its, at a six-year low at a time when the economy should be, you know, producing much better performance. It's it's worth challenging and, and asking that question and um, and trying to move the debate on from, you know, a yes or no, migration is a good thing or a bad thing. Both Bernard Hickey and Michael Riddell say we lack some crucial research that would offer more insight into the real dollar costs and benefits of immigration. But even that can only answer part of the question. It's natural to look at numbers because they promise a quantifiable solution. And economic implications will always be a critical factor. But independent economist Shamabil Jacob says it can be harder to measure feelings about immigration. We know that it, economically speaking, it is positive. But at the same time, there are lots of costs, particularly in terms of social cohesion and feeling of loss of control, uh, feeling of your culture being overtaken by others. And these are all reasonable fears. And anyway, considering how many facets of life immigration touches, isn't this bigger than just the economy? I don't think economists are the right people to answer these questions because we don't have all the different facets covered. And certainly I think the profession of economics has moved so much into that esoteric mathematical language that has become detached from the social aspect of social science. I think we expect so much from economists and we ask them to make so many judgments on what's right and wrong that it deprives the population of the democratic process of making these decisions. The reality is there are, there are no cut and dry answers when it comes to immigration. It is a deeply complex, deeply confusing area. Quite of it's quite a sensible thing. And look, you know, this just doesn't seem right. You know, we've got no housing and whatever. Why, why are they bringing in so many people when we can't deal with it at the moment? And yeah, yeah. And then I'll get on to, and all plus that, you know, the smell of their cooking, you know, and they don't really want to mix, do they? You know, and then it will gradually evolve into their prejudices are often, you know, over the people's people who are different. It's that, it's that fear of people who are different. And look, and as much as we go, yeah, you know, well, how awful, how terrible of you, 
you have to understand that is how they feel, you know, and maybe now how they're brought up and all sorts of things. But they genuinely hold those feelings. The fear of difference is fertile ground for politicians. It's a fear that's hardwired. In an evolutionary sense, there's a certain logic to understanding the world along the lines of us and them. Let me just say, it is axiomatic that immigration is about ethnicity. Because people come from other countries, and usually they come from a different race. That sort of logicality, I am astonished that someone would try and dispute it. Or what sort of ephemeral view have you got got of this issue if you don't think that race matters? Now, that's not to say that you're intolerant of any race or don't have respect for it. For goodness sake, we've got Tongans in this country, we've got Samoans, we've got Fijians, we've got Cook Islanders, we've got all sorts of people who we seriously respect and love to have here, as we have been Chinese and Indians and everywhere else. But to try and say that immigration is not a matter of race is plain stupid. I think New Zealanders live under the illusion that we're a very sort of open, open society. But I think that, you know, this year has shown in an immigration debate that um, it's not really the case because when people talk about reducing immigration numbers, they don't have in their mind the French working holiday visa girl in the cafe in Parnell or the South African engineer in the North Shore. They're thinking about the Indian guy in the service station. They're thinking about the Chinese people in the restaurants. And that's what they're thinking about when they're talking about reducing immigration. Being an immigrant will always involve feeling different, at least to begin with. But how you're received says more about the kind of country you've come to than it does about you. In New Zealand, some immigrants are more equal than others. In India, we do not serve the beef in McDonald's. So one time I still remember I said, pardon, I couldn't get, can you please repeat? And straight up he said, why you came here if you can't understand? That first time I knew... I'd say, no, okay, can you please repeat? And he's just used the F and then Indian, and I'd say, okay, that's fine. Because that was my fault. I couldn't get it. Okay, I'll improve myself. A lot of the students seem to feel that they're vulnerable right from the very beginning and that they come from a country where this is the way that things work. Um, And it's it's like a dog-eat-dog world. Um, And I don't think that they come here with the illusion that... uh, you know, everybody's going to look after them and be kind to them. They they know that it's going to be tough and it's going to be a battle. Um, but, you know, I think that once they've come here and they've had those experiences and they go back, they're pretty disillusioned about um, New Zealand um, and uh, a lot of them have some pretty negative thoughts about the country. There's no point just sort of airbrushing people's prejudices out of the way. They exist. Even though they don't voice them or only voice them on talkback, they still exist. So let's not pretend they're not there. And we need to debate that and deal with that. Because if society is changing, we should be having a discussion about it. For me, coming to New Zealand was a relief after six months in Australia. What the Aussies would probably call teasing about my Irish accent and how it was a marker for dishonesty and drunkenness and all kinds of trouble in general, that got painful pretty quickly. On first impressions, Kiwis were a lot more tolerant. Although even here, Once I started working in radio, there were plenty of texts from listeners telling me to F off back to Ireland. And not just at News Talk either. I got them at RNZ as well. Still, I only ever had an accent to mark me as different. And to be fair, in some ways it helped. And at least it's something I could change if I really felt I had to. Skin colour matters. Skin colour matters. Let's say if you go in nightclub anywhere, 
you will find the way in the people in the club even the staff how they treat two different skin color it's an easy example you know when we talk with asian uh, young asian new zealanders from a variety of backgrounds they will always retail examples of where they've been walking along a street and somebody has yelled something abusive they've went into a particular place and somebody has not served them and preferred to serve somebody else so those sorts of i would call them incidental examples of racism and that's demeaning really because you know it can be deeply deeply unsettling to the person you think you're doing okay you think you're um you're, you're settling into the country you think you're being accepted and then you get an incident which might be quite um violent and uh, verbally violent or physically violent and you suddenly think wow Paul Spoonley believes these attitudes need to be engaged there are still people in New Zealand who feel that they are empowered to act in a particular way towards those people and they might be in positions of power or they might just simply be somebody on the street and we've got to have a conversation we've got to recognize that immigrants particularly from culturally different backgrounds are going to experience that so what are we going to do about that who's going to lead that discussion where are we going to have that discussion and how are we going to react to it and and it and it always amuses me whenever this issue comes up because you think how do Maori feel because they went through this themselves you know oh I don't recognise my own country there's all these white people are changing the face of it yet we find it we have such a problem with it. I think Maori have probably got a pretty bad rap in the media for having negative attitudes towards migrants, but I feel as though um, that that might not be a very we might not be very well characterised by that portrayal. Dr. Ahram Arata from University of Waikato is a demographer who researches immigration from a Māori perspective. If you look at Māori's experience of what immigration has meant, how we've experienced that, um, it's certainly been a very negative uh, experience for us. Of course, immigration being a, a major component um, strategically used against Māori as part of colonisation. Right across the top, it's got Caucasians. And right underneath that, it's got other people. It was us! Other people! I think as a Māori person, you're, um, you, you know what it feels like when you're targeted in election campaigns and you know how hurtful and divisive it can be. Um, you know, I think back to the 2006 um, billboards with iwi versus kiwi on them and, um, you know, and just reflecting on how damaging that can be and how that really makes you feel when they use the word Kiwi that, that that's not you, that you're not part of that that group. And I think in this election it seems to be um, immigrants that are, are facing some of that flack, you know, that the idea that they are some in some way um, threatening Kiwi values. Yeah, but quite often people talk about values when they mean ethnicity, you know. Oh, well, they just don't share our values. So who doesn't? What, the British immigrants, the, the Germans? The, or are you meaning the Chinese? We've got people coming here who don't salute our flag, don't respect it, don't respect our values, don't respect our law, and above all have no idea of our desire for there to be equality between the genders in New Zealand as well as races. But, Mr Peters, in fairness, you've got people who live here who don't salute the flag. You've got people who were born here who don't share these values that you're talking about. Well, maybe you don't, but the mass majority of New Zealanders do actually respect the flag. They may not agree that it's the right flag, but whatever the flag is, they do respect it. What are New Zealand values? 
One idea that comes up over and over again is a fair go for everyone. That tends to be something we hear a lot from Pākehā, who by and large believe New Zealand isn't a racist country. Talking to people of colour, though, Māori as well as other ethnicities, it's confronting how many of them, from Leonie Hayden to Oscar Keitley to Ahrama Rata to Professor Margaret Mutu and Alia Cram, all disagree. This idea that we're not a racist country is really is a fallacy. Do you no. think this is a racist country? Well, yes. <laughs> I see it in the prison numbers where Māori are only 15% of the population, but over 50% of those incarcerated. I see it in the socioeconomic stats. The evidence clearly points to the fact that we do have issues when it comes to race in our country. And I think the first step towards addressing those issues is acknowledging that there's a problem there. There is a significant amount of discrimination and racism against all non-whites in this country, and it it is officially highlighted in the United Nations repeatedly. It's reached the point where some in the mainstream think, oh, well, that's normal. They are like that. That's just what they're like. But come on, give yourself a slap and realise that's not true. Our we are still dealing with the intergenerational um, trauma that racism and colonialism has caused. But as far as that everyday, sort of very hurtful, overt stuff, that's been borne by our, our, our Asian migrant communities. And when you say they're not, they're sometimes not fully embraced, are you talking about racism per se, or just is it more a question of difference or the difficulty of of starting a new life? Well, I think in in some cases it will be just out-and-out racism. And I think that we have this real desire to be seen as the country with the best race relations in the world, and I think that that's a beautiful aspiration, but I just don't think that we're there yet. This isn't about the kind of country that we want to be. It's about the kind of country we are. The scene for political discourse is set by politicians themselves and by the media. We've heard a lot from Winston Peters in this episode. Our level of investigation of who's coming in here uh, is really parlous in the extreme. Partly that's because we're exploring the kinds of things he talks about. And partly it's because he's a reliable performer. Good talent is the media term. The kind of person who either makes you shout at the radio or cheer it on including one of the henchmen for uh, Saddam Hussein. Now, we outed all those people, and and plus terrorists as well, one who tried to hijack a a plane. Peters likes to conjure with the worst-case scenario. Let me tell you, a stack of people who are triad members from China came to this country, and who pointed out to me, well, a number of Chinese people in this country confidentially got in contact with me to say, look, we are really alarmed when we see triad members walking around Auckland and walking down around Queen Street and who own businesses there. We've seen a response to that, though. I mean, the cops have set up specifically an Asian crime unit, haven't they, to deal with those sorts of problems? Well, with respect, no, they haven't. Well, they have. Well, no, excuse me, they set it up well after they'd arrived. Now, how does that work? This formula, an apparently reasonable man lamenting the fact that darkness is insinuating its way into our homeland, unchecked by authorities, has a visceral appeal that's met with electoral success recently. They're bringing drugs, 
They're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. But it aims to divide a society already locked into echo chambers of our own making in the internet age. Whatever we look, whatever we follow, whatever we read usually reflects our own view on something. So if you're a Trump hater, you'll, you'll, you'll suck in everything you can on Trump, you know. So you are getting a distorted view of something. Media have always been attracted by bad news. Remember, if it bleeds, it leads. And the drive for clicks in an ever-tougher marketplace makes sensationalising stories or pandering to particular demographics more and more appealing. That said, politicians have their own responsibilities. There are those uh, cynical political leaders who, of course, use what I describe as xenophobic populism, and we see examples of that around the world and sadly some examples in New Zealand. Jim Bolger was Prime Minister from 1990 to 1997. Do you see Winston Peters and New Zealand First as playing in that same political space as figures like Donald Trump or Nigel Farage? Broadly the same space, but Winston has done that many times before, so he's not following them. It's but the same space. Uh, And uh, there are always a percentage in society who will follow that because it explains their own inadequacies often, that they haven't been successful, so blame someone else. All based on identifying some definable group by religion, by ethnicity, by colour, by nationality, and you blame them. And, And that is to my mind, an appalling indictment on those who do it, but on any society that would accept that as a reason to change policies. The fabric of New Zealand society is changing, as it always has, and there will be consequences. But as tensions around how we approach the future inevitably arise, the bigger political question we're now facing is, what kind of attitude are we going to bring to that? Hope or fear? Because how we respond to the challenge will depend on how it's framed. When an institution called immigration doesn't know who's coming, and the police don't know much about them either, or our, in, uh, our security services have little idea, then maybe uh, you cannot have the confidence that you do have that all is fine here. Western societies who have, over the last 20 years, seen a very substantial decline in birth rates uh, will very soon all be competing for migrants because they'll need the workers and they'll need the taxpayers to pay for the benefits that the elderly will need. So we're in this transition period when people are nervous about immigrants. They think they're taking jobs, uh, putting pressure on infrastructure. But really, we should be very welcoming to immigrants because they are our future in terms of this country and many other countries. The effects of this most recent wave of immigration are playing out all over the country as people just get on with their lives. Join me, Noel McCarthy, next week for episode three of Slice of Heaven when we'll look at how it works, including a visit to a church built 150 years ago by Scots Presbyterians, which now has a very different congregation to what its founders would have envisaged. Say a baby, say. Hallelujah, 
Slice of Heaven was produced for RNZ National by Noel McCarthy and John Daniel of Bird of Paradise Productions Limited in association with Massey University. The sound engineer was Andre Upston. Our thanks to Dave Dobbin for the title and theme and to all the musicians who generously allowed us to use their music. The executive producers were Justin Gregory and Tim Watkin. This episode used archival audio from Natalna Sound and Vision. You can subscribe or listen to every episode of Slice of Heaven on iTunes, Spotify, or at radionz.co.nz forward slash series. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.